it is a profound thought to think of seeing God. I mean, I mean to see God face to face. I mean, it's, it's been the dream of people in the faith since the beginning. I mean, people have gone far and wide to get a glimpse of the divine. I remember coming back uh, from a pastor's conference in Orlando, and I was sitting next to a man who had a brother-in-law who was chucking everything to go to a commune in Tennessee. Because in this commune, they were going to be living a certain way, and they're going to be behaving in a certain way, addressing in a certain way, and they're going to be living together. And the intention is that that's going to lead them to a purity and a, and a higher level of spirituality than they could, that they, they could attain in this world. And, and so everything was being cast aside to be pure in heart and to have that spirituality. And I actually felt sorry for him. I mean, I appreciated the zeal, though. I appreciated the zeal, but I felt sorry. You know, Jesus speaks to us seeing God. He speaks to us about moving in that, in, in that, in that experience of seeing God face to face, but, but he doesn't send us so far away to find it. He says this, he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I, I mean, think about it for a minute. For me, it is probably the most difficult of the Beatitudes, and yet it offers the greatest promise of all the Beatitudes, to see God face to face. Martin Lloyd-Jones, this London preacher in the mid-20th century, said that on one hand it is the most inspiring, and on the other we feel the most, uh, the greatest sense of inadequacy to even understand it and walk in it. To see God face to face. Remember where we've been in these Beatitudes now? So we started in the first four chapters of Matthew. And remember, Matthew is about establishing a kingdom, a new kingdom. And so in the first four chapters, we find that Jesus is this line of Abraham and line of David. He's this kingly line and wise men come and worship him. And kings are challenged by his authority. And so they try to kill him and then... And then, of course, his forerunner, all kings have forerunners. The forerunner, John, goes and announces the gospel and begins to call people to repentance because the king is coming. And then, of course, the king does come, Jesus. He's baptized. He begins to preach. And he's calling people into this kingdom. So that's the first four chapters. The kingdom has come, and we've got our king. And now he's saying in chapters 5, 6, and 7, okay, this is the way you live in my kingdom. So this is the call of the saint, these Beatitudes aren't kind of, I got the fourth one down pretty well. I'm not doing with the first three. They're the latter, as Charles Spurgeon said. This idea of blessed are the poor in spirit. It, you know, blessed is the man who finally wakes up to realize that God is God and that we are just his creature and we're humbled. And then this creature begins to recognize, wow, God is glorious and holy. And so he mourns for his sin. Blessed are those who mourn. They shall be comforted. You will have no divine comfort until you understand the nature of your sin. And that almost makes logical sense. And, and then in, in the third beatitude, of course, once you've, once you've come to understand God in growing measure and you're mourning over your sin, of course you're going to be meek. Who would be arrogant after seeing God in mourning over your sin? We'd be meek. And, of course, we give up all the rights because God's comforted us with his son. He says, blessed are those who are meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Once we inherit the earth, we can give up rights for things. We don't need to right every wrong. We can live submissive, obedient, God-centered lives. Now, the person, of course, that is 
been humbled and is mourning over his sin and meek, of course he's going to begin thirsting and hungering for the one who saved him. And that's the fourth beatitude. Only they will be satisfied. We can chase after every little God of this world, but it's only chasing after God, hungering and thirsting for him. Now, when you've gone through the first four Beatitudes, it makes sense that the fruit that springs out of that is mercy. Of course, we're recipients of mercy. We'd want to give mercy. And then, of course, this one is this Beatitude of purity in heart. I want to remind you, this is the etiquette of the believer. We, the blessed, the the one who has been born again, is looking to pursue purity. Purity, because in that is joy and the prize of seeing God. Those who are not pure of heart will not see God. They won't see God as a father. They'll see God, but it will be as a judge. So it's amazingly important for us to walk in this. I want to give you just a few things that I, I think we get tripped up on what purity in heart is not. Purity in heart is not that I've got this outward code that I'm living according to. And that if I do this and this and this and this, if I go to church and do this ministry and read, if I do these things, then I'm going to ultimately purify my heart. I don't think that's there, as we're going to see in just a few minutes. I also think he's not talking about sinlessness. When we talk about purity in heart, we're not talking about becoming sinless. In the first letter to the apostle John, if any man says he has no sin, he's deceived, he's a liar, the truth isn't in him. So I don't think it means sinlessness, and I also don't think it means this, and this is what we usually fall into, blessed are the pure in heart, we think of as some sort of super spirituality, that if I deny myself these things, or if I even move out of this kind of sinful context, then I'll become pure in heart. This idea of self-denial or or geographical relocation, I, I just want to warn you that that is both, I think, biblically and historically ignorant. The reason I say this is because Paul has already ex- described for us in Colossians. He says this. He says, such regulations, in other words, at the church at Colossae, people were saying, hey, you shouldn't touch that, you shouldn't taste this, and you shouldn't handle these things. Stay away from these things if you really want to be spiritually strong. And he says this, such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. They don't work. And not only is it biblically, it's historically. If you trace out the history of the church, you have the craziest people. They're desiring to be holy. The anchorites. There were people that would go in a cave and build a wall and just have a little hole where food would be put through because they were thinking, if I just separate myself from the world, then I'll be holy. Well, you're taking your heart in there with you. Or Simon the Stylite. He's the famous man in the mid, in the mid 14th century where he was on a pillar 34 years, trying to stay away from society. It almost seems laughable now. But there was a true zeal to be holy by the removal from society, and it doesn't work. So that's what it's not. Well, what is it? What is purity in heart? Well, before I talk to you about purity in heart, I want to talk to you about the heart for just a minute. You know, the heart in Scripture is rarely this organ that pumps blood through our bodies. Uh, The heart in Scripture is really the seat of, of your being. In other words, it's more than affection. It is affection. You know, we think of the heart as just, that's, that's what I love with. Well, it is that, but it's more than that. It's also the intellect, that the intellect and the heart 
together. But it's also the will, the volition. In other words, your heart, when it speaks about in Scripture, blessed are the pure in heart, he's talking about the core of our being from which flow our moral choices and actions. So in Proverbs, he says, guard the heart. It's the wellspring of life. Out of the heart springs your life. We may see a lot of things, but it's flowing from the heart. Now, the heart is the source of your being and the source of all your life, but it's also the source of your trouble. See, Jesus has a perspective on the heart that's different than ours. When Jesus looks at the heart, he doesn't see the reforming of a heart to be through education or intellect or experiences or opportunities. Jesus sees the heart as really the source of our problems, the source of our problems. So it's, it's not just your neighbor, it's not your spouse, it's not your children, it's not your living situation, it's not your boss, it's the heart. And this is what Jesus says in, in Mark chapter 7, he says, For from within, out of a man's heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from inside and make a man unclean. So Jesus is helping us here. He's helping us because he's showing us that that is the source of our problem. So when we talk about blessed are the pure in heart, the external modification is not going to do it. Now, when we talk about the heart, the, the man of the world here would look at the heart as a good thing, right? I mean, the heart is where you make your decisions. Follow your heart. Well, what's your heart telling you? This has bled into the church, incidentally. Well, my heart's leaning this way. And I, I want you to understand that, at least from a biblical perspective, the heart is not your go-to. Going to your heart is going to something that's deceitful and wicked, and it's full of possible trouble. The Bible looks at the heart as a real problem. It doesn't need renewal. It needs an overhaul. It needs to be replaced with something that is sensitive and serious about God. So, so the man of the world will follow his heart, and, and the, the biblicist will say, wouldn't do that. And that's us too. So when we, what's your heart telling you? Well, if you want to know what my heart is telling you, it can really lead us into dark places. The heart is deceitful. It's wicked. Okay, the religious person here, though. The religious person will admit the place of the heart, but the religious moralist is going to see the obedience to a certain set of code or ideology or behavioral pattern that that's going to be what makes one pure. In other words, if I just do these things, and what happens is even though within the Christian community, the religious man, while he admits the heart is bad, all the effort and all the emphasis is on the behavior. And if we can just monitor the behavior because it's observable, it's measurable, it's discernible. And so if we can just control the behavior, then everything's going to be okay. And this is the argument that Jesus was in with these Pharisees. In fact, in Mark chapter 23, Matthew chapter 23, he says this. He says, woe to you teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites. You clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you are full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee. First, clean the inside of the cup and dish. And then the outside will also be clean. So, so the religious man will spend his life pursuing behaviors and patterns. And they may be going to church. They may be doing ministry. They may be understanding and reading the scriptures. But that will not change the inside. Here's what the Christian thinks at this point. The Christian understands the importance of the heart. 
and the purity of the heart. The Christian understands actually that God looks at the heart. I mean, it says in 1 Samuel, it says that man judges by appearances, God looks at the heart. And so the Christian's going to look at the heart. See, Jesus hasn't come to reform our bad habits. He's come to remake our bad hearts. Change the heart. And so when we hear, blessed are the pure in heart, I'm going after the core of your being. I'm not looking at behavioral modification right now. I'm not going to give you a list of what you've got to do or what you've got to wear. But purity begins in the heart. So now let's look at what purity means. It's important. If we understand the heart, what does a pure heart look like? Well, the word purity, actually, I, I think Jesus is drawing this out of Psalm 24. Let me read it for you. It's, uh, uh, who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place from which presumably you would see him? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. So purity is coming from within the soul. And so when I speak about purity, I mean two things. Number one would be this moral cleanliness. You know, this word purity, at least in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, was used 158 times in the book of Leviticus alone of a moral purity, a holiness. In other words, the religious man is managing his sin. The Christian is, is dealing with this sin at the heart level. He's dealing with his temptations. He's dealing with his heart. What does he love? He's dealing with his mind. What does he think about? He's dealing with his will. What does he want? So, see, the, the purity of heart is at that level. So when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5, he says, you've heard it say, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. But I say to you, if any man looks upon a woman with a lustful intent, he has committed adultery where? In his heart. So he's looking at the heart. So there's a purity that he's going for. Purity of heart is that moral cleanliness. But it's more than this sensual issue. The word purity has this understanding of unadulterated or unmixed. It's singular. That the heart is singularly passionate to God. So blessed are the pure in heart. That heart is devoted to God. That, that it isn't mixed. It's not like a glass of wine with water added. It's not like a metal with alloy added. It's a pure heart. There's a transparency between God and, and the man and between men. There, there's a sense of sincerity that, that what you see is what you get. The inward motives are equivalent to the outward actions. There's a singleness of purpose towards God. That's what this idea of being pure of heart. It's not just a moral cleanliness, but it's a singular purpose. That's why we sang, give me one passion, one passion. That's the heart. You, you know, th this idea of double-mindedness is in Scripture. We struggle with this. We love God, but we love all these others. It, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be, it'd be analogous to me, to me loving Carol. I just have a few extra wives. I love her most. She's the first one. I'll treat her the best. You'd look at it and say, that's absolutely ludicrous. But that's what we do. We have God, we love God, but we love all these other little gods next to him. And this purity of heart is a singular devotion to God. Without hypocrisy. So the word hypocrite was often used in ancient language, at least for an actor. So a Greek actor would put on a mask and he would do a play. He'd take off the mask and be another man. So who is the man? Well, it depends. Does he have the mask? Does he not? It's a double-minded man. He's unstable in all of his ways. So Jesus is saying, no, you'll be happy if you're singularly devoted. Right? This is what David Brainerd. Remember, David Brainerd was the first American missionary to the Indians in America. 
course, he was dying at Jonathan Edwards' home. And here's what he said to him before he died. He said, I don't go to heaven to be advanced, but to give honor to God. It is no matter where I shall be stationed in heaven, whether I have a high or a low seat there, but to live and to please and to glorify God. My heaven is to please God and glorify him and give all to him and to be wholly devoted. Now, folks, that may be far from your language, but, but, it, but, but it's a picture of it. It's like Psalm 86. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. An undivided heart is a pure heart. Augustine said it this way. Augustine said, It's a simple heart. It's one undivided in its allegiance and rightly directed. Søren Kierkegaard, a famous uh, Danish philosopher, said, it is to will one thing. That's the heart. So, So this singular purpose, this clean heart, this pure heart is a necessity to see God. So, when you examine yourselves. And scripture calls us to do that. You know, in 2 Corinthians 13, 5, it says, test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. And, and so, and, and oftentimes I used to come to tests with a rather bold attitude. I thought, well, I, I really have the stuff down. Well, should you study anymore? My mom would ask me. No, I got it down, mom. I'm cold. But the test would reveal where I really was. And so tests are good things because they put you on the map. They let you know, and they kind of deflate perhaps an over-optimistic view of ourselves. Now, I I definitely don't want to lead you into a pessimistic view necessarily, but I definitely want to get us right. And so ask yourselves, when you examine your hearts, do you sense a growing passion for God? And is it expressed in a growing desire for holiness? I mean, do you have this growing allegiance to Christ and all that he has done for you? And is it expressed in a life devoted to him? Or do you struggle with duplicity? Do you struggle with compromise? Are you, when, you, when your mind is doing nothing, where does it drift to? These are questions you want to ask yourself to find out. Is my heart pure? Blessed are the pure in heart. It doesn't say blessed is the heart, but the pure heart. And is your heart pure? The, 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 the stakes are huge. And Jesus gives us this promise, this, this prize, if you will. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You're going to see God. So this isn't, you know, you're going for second or third. You'll still get a ribbon. You'll still get a trophy. This is seeing the very face of God. The prize is immense. But it's kind of hard to understand because if you've read the scriptures, you know that no one is seeing God. Right? In First Timothy 6.16, he says, The King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. So Jesus is telling us, blessed are the pure in heart. I've explained what the heart is and what purity looks like in the heart. And he says, you shall see God. But how can we see God? I mean, is God seeable? Well, you know, even in our language today, that the word, that the verb to see is more than just a visual apprehension. I mean, to see is to understand. It's to experience. We say it all the time. Don't you see my point? Do you see what I'm saying? There's an understanding and experience. Jonathan Edwards said this about in his sermon on on this passage. He says, to see God is to have an immediate, sensible, and certain understanding of God's glorious majesty and love. In other words, there's an understanding, a better enjoyment of God in this life. So each one of these beatitudes has a present-day blessing and a future promise. 
a present day today, we're going to receive from God an encouragement to walk in this beatitude. And then there's going to be the full, the, con- the consummation of the blessing when we see him face to face. So how do we see God now? Well, I think there's a number of ways that you can see God. Number one, you can see God through creation. Now, the unbeliever may study creation and be blind to the glory of God. But when we see creation and you look at the stars and you see their glory, it's hard not to think, God, you're powerful, you're glorious. So we lived in Austria. We lived outside the city. There were very few lights over there. And you could actually see that whitish haze that's called the Milky Way, the whitish haze among the stars. It's absolutely phenomenal to see with the naked eye. And you're just like, God, this is amazing. Every, every one of those stars you have made and you call by name. Or, or, or when I was flying and there's an electrical storm to the right of the plane, and you see these massive bolts of lightning just break out from nowhere, and they go for miles with, with just thousands of watts of power. And you sit there and think, if that's just a glimmer of his power, you see God. That's what the psalmist says. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim his handiwork. But not just in creation. You can see God in the providence of the saints. How, you know, the unbeliever walks through life, and, and if things are going well, it's either his effort or luck. If things are going poor, it's just blind faith. But the believer looks through life, and he sees how God has moved in his life, even through difficulty. And, and this is why we read history. This is why we read the saints. Karen and I were watching a show last week, and it, it had a part in there about the, um, back in May of 1940, and this was the Battle of Dunkirk. So this is when the, really the Germans had advanced Dunkirk, France, and pinned uh, a couple hundred thousand, the bulk. In fact, as, as one of the uh, defense ministers says, the root of the British army was pinned, as well as about 140 French and Belgium soldiers. And, and, and the Germans were there. They had the air. They had the artillery. And... Uh, the nation of England gathered for prayer, and of course they prayed, and then they had this, I think it was Operation Dynamo, which was to retrieve these men. And over the course of nine days, the weather, the sea was flat, the weather was beneficial, and close to a 1,000 boats went there, and they delivered 389,000 men. And you look at that, and you think, God, you had to be there. I mean, it's hard to see that and not think, God, you were part of that. So we see God in his providential grace. I know you've seen him in your life. and You've thought about his providence to you. It's a vision of God. It's a foretaste. It's just a whiff of the apple pie. You're not having a piece yet, but you know it's coming. It, you can smell it. Or uh, in Scripture. Scripture, you, you see God in Scripture. I mean, the unbeliever can, the non-Christian can look at Scripture and be unmoved by it. But you read Scripture, and you're overwhelmed by the redemption that is earned for you in Jesus Christ. You're overwhelmed by this crucifixion scene, and he bore my sin, and he took my shame and guilt, and he's delivered me by faith. Just by believing in Christ, I'm saved. You're overwhelmed by that. Or perhaps you're reading Scripture, and you're encouraged by a word. You're downcast. You turn to Psalm 42. Why be downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God, and, and you feel your heart moved. Or I even think about the times I've read Scripture, and my heart's been exposed to me, and I've been st- the stinging conviction of the Spirit leading me to repentance. 
Thank you, God, for that. So we see God in Scripture. And then, of course, we see God just in the, just in the ways of life, in the difficulties of life. You know you've seen God when you've, when you've been angry at someone and, and the Spirit of God just softens you and you move with repentance. Or, 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 or you've been hurt by somebody, but, but God softens your soul so that you can extend forgiveness to them. I've seen numerous of you have been under great pressure and you are sustained by a hand that is unseen. And thus I see God. So these are some of the ways that God reveals himself to us through the word, through people, through creation, through the scriptures. But there's going to be a day that will come to all of us. All the Christians will have a day. Right now our vision is dim, admittedly. The pollution of our souls, the idolatry of our hearts, we don't see God as clearly, but there will be a day. And there will be a day that you see him in his dazzling glory. It's a day uh, that is to be sought after, longed for. I think about Moses. He couldn't see the face of God. I thought of John in the, in the book of Revelation chapter 1. He looks at the face of Jesus and falls down as though dead. And yet you will stand and see him face to face. In fact, the scriptures encourage you to dwell upon this. Listen to what they say. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we see face to face or a love in Job 19. I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, and how my heart yearns within me. I mean, is this, is this the way you feel? Is this the way you... Have you given thought to this? We've been hitting this a little bit in the attitudes. All these promises are calling you to cast one eye to the next life. We are a people that live in two kingdoms. We are a people that live in this world and we are to live diligently and grace-filledly in this life, but we're to be looking for the next life, every one of us. And, you know, I prayed especially for the students because I remember as a student, you don't look beyond the week. Uh, the week, that would be good. I used to study just for a test the next day. I wouldn't even look at the next week. And and it's hard for the student, for those that are probably younger than 25, it's hard to think about these things. They don't have the ring of hope that they do to you when you're 60, when you're 70, and you know, you hear death calling you, and you know you're going to stand before him. And then your, your interest is a little more piqued. But that's the promise. Blessed are the pure in heart. I mean, if you're pure in heart... If you're really pure in heart, you will see God now. But you'll see him face to face then. But that's the rub, isn't it, with this? Who is pure in heart? I mean, really. I mean, who here would be able to just expose their hearts to all of us and just say, yep, I got this one down, Tom. Let's move on to the next one. Well, the Christian understands that purity in heart begins with being born again. The world doesn't say this. The world takes your heart and will add good things to it. Education, opportunities, a better environment. The world wants to better the heart, no question, with good things, but upon the old heart. The religious man, as I said, he he will want to better the heart by behavioral modification. If we just do these things, and I want you to know that there is no way to walk in this 
apart from having been regenerated by the Spirit of God. That, that, the, that there, has to be, there has to be the removal of a heart of stone and, and in its place is put a heart that is fleshly that responds to God. Now, this is a work of God. This is not a work of man. God has to do the work of, of the heart through the power of the Spirit by the preaching of the gospel. So it's the preaching of the gospel that Jesus Christ has come because God has sent him graciously. And he has come to reconcile men to God through faith that we are placing our trust of our soul and life in Christ. And that we are forgiven and we're cleansed from our sin and we're given a new heart. This is exactly what was found in the Old Testament, not the new. In Ezekiel 36, he says, I, and listen to the similar language with, with Matthew 5, 8. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will serve you, picking up Psalm 24. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit and I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone and your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. This is an operation of God. It's what we call a monergistic work. God moves. We respond by faith. And so apart from that, what I'm about to tell you in terms of walking in purity will lead you just to condemnation and frustration. If you're not born again to pursue, pure, to pursue purity, if you're good at it, it will lead to self-righteousness. If you're lousy at it, it's going to lead to self-condemnation. Apart from the gospel, no man, no woman, no student can pursue, can pursue purity. So if you're a believer, and I would just say this to the non-Christian here, I, I, would, I would love to engage you, the staff, elders, we would lo- the person next to you, that if you have never been born again, then what I'm about to say, listen to it and I pray you enjoy it, but please don't try to practice it. I, I, I would encourage you, if your heart is burdened now, with the lack of purity, and if your heart is burdened with all the failed attempts that you've made to walk in purity, then please see us after the service. But to the Christian here, to the one who has been born again, let me just give you a couple ideas to consider in terms of developing purity. You know, in James chapter 4, he says this, he says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. And then he says, wash your hands. He says, wash your hands you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So he's talking to the church here. And, and there's this bilateral relationship. We're coming to God, God's coming to us. And so, and, and there's, God's got to play a part in our sanctification, and we play a part. And so that's what I want to speak to now. But apart from your love for the gospel, if you attempt to do this, it's going to lead to frustration. So the first thing I would say, in terms of developing a greater purity, so that you can enjoy the promise of seeing God in greater measure, would be to seek God first for purity. Instead of going into, and this is what I'm going to change in my life, and I'm going to stop looking at pornography, and I'm going to stop playing fast and loose with my money, and I'm going to stop lying. Instead of doing that, first seek God. Just seek God for renewal, for the strength. Seek God for grace. That if you try to undertake this on your own, it will be a miserable collapse failure. Seek God. I mean, when David was caught in sin, he said, create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. Ask God. God is desirous for his sinning saints to come so that he will give them grace. 
and you will love him more and you will grow more dependent upon him. God wants the sinner to come. This is the irony of darkness. The irony of darkness is when you're in sin, don't go to God. Do a devotional life or, or share Jesus with somebody and do a couple good things and then go to God. That way you're cleaned up and that way God will accept you. No, God accepts us now with sin in Christ. And so run to God and ask him for grace and strength that he would cleanse you. Perhaps you're struggling massively with pornography. Then run to him. Ask him for grace. I can't defeat this enemy. It's envy. Maybe you have bitterness. Your marriage is absolute in a collapsed mode and you are so bitter. Then ask him, God, grant to me grace that I can forgive and love. So seek God. I can't tell you that enough. He will do a work in you, grace sustaining you, upholding you. But not just seek God, but also seek his word. Yeah, I think about the word of God. I I believe that 95% of you in here have a very high view of scripture. But when you're struggling in life, and when you're struggling in particular with purity, do you turn, to whom do you turn? Is it to a friend? Is it to an accountability group? Is it to some good blog writing that you've read? Those can all be good. I don't doubt it. But do you turn to scriptures? I mean, I I look at the scriptures. It's in the scriptures that you see the glory and the greatness of God, which helps you be faithful in times of fear. It's in the scriptures that you find the redemptive work of Christ, which really gives you confidence that God can forgive you in Christ because you see his sacrifice. It's in the scriptures that you meet the power of the spirit, convicting you of sin, leading you to righteousness. It's in the scriptures that you see the promises of God that kind of buoy and help you and give you hope and encouragement. I mean, the scriptures, God has given these scriptures for us so that we might grow in purity. Jesus said in John 15, 3, you've already been cleansed by the word I preached to you, that the word has a cleansing power, bringing us to a greater purity. So God purifies us. He purifies us through the reading of his word. But I would also say, uh, thirdly, that... um, to consider the prize. I want you to think about the prize. The prize is seeing God face to face, given to those who have been born again are now children of God. Then I want you to, I, there is value in you carving out a niche of every day just to cast your mind forward to say, what will the day be like? I try to do that. I try to imagine myself. What will I do when I stand before God? Will I fall down? Will I just be in tears? Will I be shaking? What will it be like? And I think about that day. What will it be like to see Jesus Christ? To thank him. I mean, to see the the scars that are in his hand. What will I say to him? What will it be? You know, I prepare diligently before I stand before you. Do we prepare it all before we stand before him? What are you going to say? I mean, it's, it's the burning passion of the saint to think about that. And here's the benefit. There is a purifying effect on our life when we know we're going to see him. He says in 1 John, in fact, Luke quoted it for us. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. You know how it is. If you're going somewhere to meet someone, you want to get dressed up. You prepare yourself. You ready yourself. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's a promise here. We don't just walk in purity because we're grateful for the cross, we walk in purity because we want to see him. 
That's the prize that God has given to us to motivate our obedience. God is kind to us that way. He says, this is what you have. It's a motivation. It's a finish line. It's a trophy at the end. It motivates us. Yes, this is worth it. It is difficult to be pure in this world, but it's worth it because of that prize. That prize is to see the king of all face to face. So it's to purify us. But, but then also, I would ask you to examine your, your motivation. There is value in you. You know, Socrates said the unexamined life is not worth living. We have to examine our lives. You know, it, be honest with yourself before God. Ask the Spirit for wisdom. I mean, ask yourself, so why do I come to church? Is it to fulfill some obligation or is it to worship God? Why do I engage in a ministry? Is it so that I can be appreciated or that I can honor God with the gifts that I have? Why am I angry? Is it because God's name has been defamed or is it my name has been trampled upon? Why am I happy? Is it because God's been honored or is it because things went well for me? I mean, ask yourself these questions. I mean, get below the surface as to discern why you're doing what you're doing. This will, what, what this does is it exposes that duplicity and that hypocrisy. And folks, the easiest way to deal with hypocrisy and duplicity is to confess it. And if you have trouble seeing it, ask your spouse. Ask your children. Let them, let them weigh in on your life. After examining yourselves, the last thing I would say is just to be uh, mindful to repent of idols. Um, idols are all about us. John Calvin, of course, said that our hearts are manufacturers. So what is an idol? An idol is a rival love to God. I know many of you love God. But I know that many of us love a lot of other things. And, and, you know, we live in a culture right now that it's just there is all kinds of neat things to be distracted by. And, and there, a lot of them are really good things. And we, uh, and we love them very much. And they take up a lot of time and attention. And, and I would ask you to be mindful, where, where is the thin part of the ice in your life? What idols are you most susceptible to? I mean, I mean we are like... You know, when we used to take our kids to the uh, Blockbuster to get a movie, it's like when we entered the door, they became octopuses. I mean, they all had eight arms, and they were going everywhere, grabbing every movie off the thing. It was like all these movies, and I want to see them all. And and it's like all this interest, all these neat things around. And and we're the same way in terms of our, our tendency to want to pursue things that give us an immediate gratification but have no long term substance. We make the choice all the time to do that. And so repent of that. I mean, ask God for grace. Where am I in love with things outside of you? And ask him for grace. Ask him for strength to repent. And that's a purifying of your soul. So he says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. You will be happy when you pursue purity in heart because you're going to see God one day. And there are many ways to increase your purity, to develop that. It's to seek God. It's to, it's to look at the scriptures. It's to examine your heart. It's to consider the prize. And it's to repent of your idols. So, folks, th- these beatitudes, as we get up, you know, who wants to go to the top of the ladder, right? Top of the ladder is the scariest place, and we're just marching up there, aren't we? This is the sixth. We've got two more to go. And so... Continue the climb with me. I want your eyes to be open to the greatness of God. 
Let's take a few minutes now, which we have, and I'd like us to pray. And again, what we're trying to do here in this church is to give a response corporately. The word's been broken corporately, and so now we're responding as a people, as a family. And so it's a time where we can give thanks to God for what he has done for us in Christ. It is a time to seek grace for all of us. But let's, let's make our prayers corporate. Let's make them brief so that others may pray. And, uh, I, and I love when Scripture is read, but even a brief passage. And, and let's speak up so that we can hear you because we're praying corporately, and I want to join with you in your prayer. So I'll start, and then uh, Ray's going to close us in just a minute. Father, thank you for the grace you've given to us in this word. Lord, this is a, it, it is a difficult word, but you have, you have balanced the difficulty with giving us a prize of inestimable value. And so, Lord, would you grant to us the grace that we might find happiness and blessedness in pursuing a purity of heart for your sake and for our sake that we might see you face to face with joy, not shrinking back, but with joy and excitement. As the son ran to the father, might we run to you when we see you face to face. 